Hi everyone, co-host Luke here with just a minor production note before we get to the meat of today's show. Uh, As some of you will know, if you've been listening to our recent episodes, my esteemed co-host, Mr. Will Sloan, uh, is currently on the other side of the world. He's in the land down under, so thus not able to join me at the Gore Lieberman Studios to record. Uh, I did not want to make Will, you know, do an episode over Zoom while he's trying to enjoy himself and get a little bit of time off, uh, particularly given the ferocity of some of the things that we've been subjecting ourselves to for uh, for the show over the last few weeks. Uh, but don't fret. I've got a great co-host in Alex Shepard of The New Republic. Uh, I'm sure many of you know his work already. And of course, he's been a past guest on the show. Uh, so we had a, a great movie that was actually Alex's suggestion. I think this is going to be the first of, well, at least several more episodes in this vein. I feel like we have discovered a very rich deposit of material here. Um, off the top, Alex's head, uh, like mine, has been, you know, very much with the kind of uh, Trump-DeSantis fight. Alex has also written extensively about Tucker Carlson. So since both of these things are uh, have been in the news, we spent a, a fair amount of time talking about that off the top in a pretty, uh, you know, fairly serious straight politics discussion. Um, and then we proceeded for the remainder of the show to uh, descend into madness. Um, I was in physical agony uh, watching this movie, but also ecstasy as well. Uh, you will hear uh, by the end of the discussion just our uh, our madness and also joy at discussing the uh, Kevin Sorbo, Christian Wright evangelical movie, uh, God's Not Dead. Just as a final note, if you are listening to this on a free feed somewhere, a reminder that the Michael and Us podcast does have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Michael and Us, where you can subscribe for the low, low price of just five Yankee dollars a month to get a whole extra episode a week, plus a bunch of other bonus goodies that we put on there. So that's uh, more than twice the content you can get on the free feed, patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Now, with all that out of the way, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Alex Shepard of the New Republic. Thanks again to Alex for joining us. I hope you all enjoy uh, the preceding discussion as much as we did. Oh my God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, like a Okay, well, joining me for, I guess, uh, it's your third appearance on the Michael and Us podcast. It's Alex Shepard of the New Republic filling in uh, for Will Sloan, who is currently in Australia. How you doing, Alex? Yeah, it's great to be back with you. Um, I'll do my best to fill in for your illustrious co-host while he is uh, attending Rifkin's Festival in Australia, I believe. <laughs> well, we have a hell of a movie to discuss. I mean, I don't know. Such sights to show the listeners. Um, but before we before we get into the movie, I did think, since you're here, uh, it'd be good to talk about some of the stuff that uh, you know has been on both of our minds recently and that we've been writing about. I mean, you've very much been on the Tucker Carlson beat. So I'm curious to ask you, I guess, first, what, what, what's your general sense of his of his firing? And do you do you have any insight as somebody who spent so much time immersed in, you know, Carlson as a, as a subject? What do you think is behind this? Can you do you have an educated guess? I mean, I think my my best theory, and it may just be that, you know, I'm too deep into succession season four or something, <laughs> but it's that this is senile Rupert Murdoch trying to recapture the juice of, you know, septa generian Rupert Murdoch. 
I think that they were looking at a series of lawsuits that are going to come after this. I think in general, Rupert is not a fan of Tucker Carlson's general approach, which is just a little too far going into the sort of white nationalistic sort of, we'll talk a little bit about this sort of Christian nationalism as well. Right. Um, we're talking about the movie. And <laughs> I think mostly he just saw Tucker as the one guy that he can't control, right? Like, He's not part of the larger Murdoch political project, or he, he is, but with some pretty key differences, he's certainly not a Hannity type figure. I think that there was a general sense that he was the one guy that was not going to, you know, play by the rules, or at least as handed down by Murdoch at all. And they saw this as the right time to get rid of him. And I think that that generally tracks both with like things that I'm hearing and with other reporting that's out there. Um, I think the big issue is that I don't think he actually has a plan about what he's going to do. And like there has been like a pretty huge ratings drop off. I think that that will recover at some point. But, the you know, the larger issue here is in two or three months, Donald Trump is going to regain the, the similar footing that he had with a very Tucker Carlson-y program. And I don't think that there's any plan at Fox to actually deal with that at all. And instead, you're going to have this, you know, ongoing um, war of wards, which is started with Tucker Carlson's weird well, yeah. So he put out he put out this kind of strange like hostage video a couple of nights ago, which which you wrote about for the New Republic in your in your latest piece. I mean, I was struck that, you know, A, he didn't say anything about the circumstances around his firing. And B, I mean, as you pointed out in your piece, I, I mean, the, the message is all kind of vintage Tucker Carlson, but there's not really anything of substance. I mean, it seems like uh, it seems like he is a little kind of rudderless and isn't sure what to what to do next. Well, I think that you could see a situation in which both Fox and Tucker end up both more radical, but also slightly diminished in all of this. And I think that was him. I mean, one, it was just him saber rattling, right? The timing of that's not accidental. The, that evening, this uh, video comes out like an hour or so after the New York Times drops the story that's basically just like, oh, Fox got all these texts from Tucker that are even more, they were shocked at how racist they were or whatever, which is funny uh, because I'm sure that that's ridiculous. But I think that he was he was doing a video to say, look, I'm still here and I'm going to try to get my audience to come with me wherever I go. The thing that he's going to run into, though, is like, well, where is he going to go? The thing with Fox's viewers is that they're still a captive audience. These are people that have cable television. They want to watch people on cable television. And they have not, you know, aside from this brief period in January and February of 2020, they've never really migrated elsewhere. So, uh, you know, I think he's trying to say, like, I'm going to take the crazies with me, you know, and good luck. But uh, mostly I think he's just going to hang out in his basement in Maine for a while and be sad. Well, I suppose the the wider the wider context for all of this is really this kind of ongoing uh, crack up on the right. This endless tug of war between a part of the right that wants to at least maintain some pretense to respectability, and you know the other the other chunk of it, which is really where the energy of the Republican base is, particularly with you know the primaries coming up, and and you know you mentioned um, late twenty twenty as well. The the Republican base was not. You know, it was they were with Newsmax and OAN. They they really did not like uh, Fox News calling the you know Fox News. I think might have been the first network to call Georgia for Biden, and so many of these text messages that came out of the Dominion lawsuit. Um, you know what they basically showed, of course, is all these Fox hosts saying like, 
you know, this is killing us with the, uh, you know, this is killing us with our audience. But but then at the same time, many of them indicating that they didn't actually believe any of the, you know, election conspiracy stuff. So, I mean, I guess Tucker could go over to something like Newsmax or OAN, but uh, I still have no sense of what the scale of those platforms are. And if he, you know, he could ever have, you know, even Tucker Carlson, is he ever going to have a show with as big an audience or, or as much influence on one of those networks as he did on Fox? Yeah, I mean, it seemed probably not. I mean, it does seem like there has been. I think one of the things that Murdoch did not consider in all of this is just how theatrical and stupid every controversy is now. I mean, they're essentially trying to Bud Light Fox News over this, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Fox News has gone woke <laughs> by getting rid of Tucker. And, you know, I think I think that there is, and, and no one was better at doing this than, than Tucker was for a while, which is just plucking random stories out of thin air and turning them into these, like, culture war lines that shall not be crossed. And, you know, if that's actually possible with Fox, I don't know, but I would say that, this does seem to probably still pale in comparison to the post-2020 election, post-January 6th Fox, right? And you did see this dip, but like those people all came right back because they're old and they have nothing to do other than they just want to be fed stories about why they should be terrified about everything in the world. <laughs> and I think that, you know, Fox is probably ultimately going to find somebody who is pretty much like Tucker, right, with maybe you know, five to 10% less white nationalism. And I think that that's really like the the line that we're talking about here. You know, the other hosts still do these culture war stories. Like the five is the most popular show on Fox because it's almost all culture war stories. It's this minute fixation on stupid shit about candy or whatever. And (laughs) and I think that that can be recreated even if it's not done with I think Tucker's particular brand of of smugness. Well, this might be a good segue into the uh, you know 2024 election and the Republican primary because, of course, the political analog to all of this is the burgeoning contest between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, which you know in a way uh, reflects the very dichotomy we've been kind of dancing around here between a part of the right that yeah wants to maintain some pretense to respectability is is finished with Donald Trump. Uh, it's funny to think that respectability might be associated with Ron DeSantis, who's like just an absurd clown and just like a, a culture warrior, like even more so than Donald Trump. But I think that that, you know, after the midterms really was the, repl- the playbook of a certain kind of Republican donor. They thought, you know, this is going to be, I mean, they said this openly, right? This is going to be Trumpism without the, you know, Trumpism without Trump, Trumpism without the drama, whatever. And I mean, DeSantis, I guess NBC uh, reported a day or two ago that he's going to launch his campaign in the next few weeks. But to me, it's like the wave is already crested. Like DeSantis, his strategy, which is just the the same strategy uh, you just mentioned in relation to Fox, of just like feeding the Republican base red meat constantly, whatever dumb controversy there is, whether it's Bud Light or M&M's not being, you know, sufficiently alluring or whatever, like DeSantis jumps on all that stuff. And Trump has has regained a huge lead in the polls. I mean, he's always been ahead, but DeSantis has really sunk. And to me, he already looks kind of like a he's been jebified. What is your sense of, of DeSantis? Yeah, more or less that. I mean, I think that there is always a sense to 
understate how ideological DeSantis is, both among mm-hmm. Republican Party elites and I think particularly among the credulous mainstream press. Um, yeah. And I think that that was mostly wish, like an exercise in wish fulfillment. You know, he's essentially like a weird neo-Straussian, right? Like, and that, <laughs> and he thinks that being ideological is how to win elections. I think that there was also a sense among, I mean, the, you know, the Murdoch people in particular have really backed him strongly yeah. that essentially you could get you know, the things that they like about Trump with few of the things that you don't get. But I think one of the things that they've always underrated about Trump is that his combustibility is like actually the centerpiece of his appeal and that like his authenticity comes from the fact that he's, you know, going to say and do crazy things. And I think that, you know, DeSantis in theory, right, was appealing to both elites and to a lot of people because everyone was fed up with Donald Trump, or a lot of people are fed up with Donald Trump. But once you finally get close to the situation in which these two people are put next to each other, you see one, what a weird, charismaless, reptilian weirdo um, (laughs) DeSantis is. (laughs) Uh, But I think also, you know, Trump could retake, especially after the arrest, could sort of retake his position as the sort of chief martyr of this kind of mass conservative Republican victim complex, you know, and and he retook his, his status as whatever the main character on the right. And DeSantis just does not have the juice. Like he can't just make himself into these into the the type of compelling figure that Donald Trump is in in large part because he I mean he might be crazy in different ways but he's predictable and that makes it impossible to run against somebody. I would say just briefly the other thing that's crazy is just that all of his guys are whining constantly now on background about the fact that they're not getting any press coverage and that Trump is like eating their lunch. But you're like, well, you're going to be running against this guy. If you want to make news, you should be like, hey, Donald Trump is bad. But they, they're all terrified of saying this because they know that if they, they want somebody else to do it for them. And that's the exact situation that they had in 2016. And it's just not going to work. Right. I mean, the the people that they need to win over are people who like Donald Trump. But if they attack Donald Trump, they're not going to win those people over. So to me, like, I guess if uh, if DeSantis were a more talented politician, politician, you know, maybe he could figure out a way to walk this tightrope. But like you said, I I just don't think he has the juice. And I feel like his nascent candidacy has clarified a lot for me things about Donald Trump. Like, I I think there was an impression for a long time that, you know, Donald Trump uh, is this guy who just has his finger on the pulse, the Republican base, and he's He's always giving it what it wants. And I think that's true in a sense. But with DeSantis, where that really is his whole shtick, like you can see how the version of it Trump has is much more about himself. Trump's talent and his unique kind of exceptional ability as a figure on the right is his capacity to, I mean, you said it a few moments ago, like his capacity to make himself the main character. DeSant, what DeSantis does, like what his culture war stick is predicated upon is fundamentally reactive. Like it's him hopping on these things that he, like he's not creating the narrative in the same way. And I feel like that's why barring something very unexpected, Donald Trump is almost certainly going to win and possibly in a walk. Yeah. I mean, right now I would say, you know, we'll see what the head to head stuff looks like, but I just don't. I mean, I, you know, I think the, the the weirdly the candidate that I would be betting on right now, if it's not Trump, is like Larry Elder or something. Like I could see, <laughs> but I think none of the people who are, you know, like Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Christy Nome, none of these people are none of the actual politicians can do it. I mean, I think that it, one of the funny things about Trump is that he doesn't. He, I think he doesn't care about most of the 
right-wing culture war stuff, but he's now, he has all these like 25-year-old worms who uh, are starting to write speeches for him. So he'll just go off on these tangents that make no sense. But, you know, the DeSantis <laughs> stuff, like if you think about the fight with Disney, you know, it's, some of this is ostensibly like the Bud Light thing, right? The Bud Light thing is, it's not really straightforward, but it, it's somewhat legible to people, right? Where they're just like, whatever, they're trans or some, you know, they've got a trans influencer, Godfrey Bud Light or something. But the Disney thing is so convoluted and i feel like the more these people get into like this sort of trench warfare with this stuff it just stops making sense to normal people and the desantis thing is you're like what is his candidacy actually about at this point and and i think that you know like trump you know it's a neo-fascist authoritarian argument that you know like i am your retribution like i'm gonna come here to get revenge on the people that have wronged me and because i am a metaphor for you then you will get revenge too with desantis it's just like well i'm gonna you know stop the liberal professors and the liberal <laughs> mickey mouse and it's just like it's so i mean the debates for this are going to be like in insane because you know, I think one of the things that is underrated is just how far the culture war stuff has gone off the rails on the right to the extent that it's just not sensible to normal people. I never tire of citing this as an example, but a few months ago, I saw a tweet that I from a DeSantis guy that I thought really summed up the, I don't know, ineptitude and yeah, just fundamental dearth of of juice on the DeSantis side. Uh, it was one of these one of these DeSantis guys. Like it was when Trump was tweeting about Rihanna. God help me, I cannot remember what why Trump was angry about Rihanna. But this DeSantis guy was halftime show. That's right. That's right. Thank you. So this DeSantis guy was saying, you know, while Donald Trump talks about Rihanna, like Ron DeSantis is on the front lines fighting ESG, and it's like. Nobody knows what that is. People know who Rihanna is. And like, is it weird that Donald Trump is talking about Rihanna? Yeah, but I mean, at this point, we know Donald Trump and it's not really it's not really weird. But unless you are immersed in like the yeah, the weird world of kind of like unless you have committed all of the rights like weird bet noirs to memory by binging OAN or by spending, you know, watching the Daily Wire or whatever, like you have no idea what ESG is you know <laughs> yeah i mean I think, you know and i think that it, it, this all kind of like everyone has just sort of overstated one aspect of trump winning in 2016 which and i, I mean it was a huge part of it which is just like the fact that he would say crazy things proved to normal people that he was or to republican voters that he was not a normal politician right and that he was a pugilist and that they wanted fighters. So everyone was like, well, we have to go and fight. And that's, I think, one reason why we now have this like unending series of, and I think, you know, also because of the right wing media space. But the thing it ignores is like the real reason that he won in our stupid political system is that he went to the industrial Midwest yes. and was like, I'm also not like, other politicians and that I'm not going to cut your Medicare and Social Security and also I'm going to bring back all of your jobs. And he was talking about the economy in a way that I think made sense, particularly in 2016 when the after effects of the recession were still being felt, whereas now we just have this goofy, weird economy. But one of the things that's insane to me is like the economy still sucks in a lot of ways. Inflation <laughs> terrible. You know, people are not doing well, but nobody is talking about any of that stuff at all. And instead, <laughs> you just have this like race to the bottom about diversity, equity, inclusion officers or whatever it is. Well, we'll get to the movie. Uh, the discussion of the movie, I feel like, is going to be radically different in tone uh, than, than this discussion has been. Um, but before we wrap up the serious politics portion of the episode, I am glad that you brought up this point about Trump's 2016 
campaign. And, you know, I have to say the rational part of my brain is very anxious here because when you see the attack ads he's running against Ron DeSantis, like, I don't know if you've seen the pudding finger ad where it's like Ron DeSantis is taking, like, his fingers aren't just in pudding. They're also in your social security and your, you know, Medicaid or whatever. I mean, there's a very perceptive piece by Jamal Bowie in January that was pointing out, you know, DeSantis focuses on culture war stuff precisely because he's so vulnerable on all this stuff. And I think Trump, he does seem to understand, you know, what was effective about his 2016 campaign, even years later. And he seems to be, uh, he seems to be doing it again. And that makes me very anxious. The non-rational part of my brain is just really looking forward to all of the amazing content that lies ahead because these debates are going to be incredible. I feel like the debates between Trump and, you know, Jeb and Ben Carson and Chris Christie and all the others, that was some of the best TV that I think American politics has ever produced. And I'm I'm hoping that the DeSantis-Trump contest will will rise to the same uh, the same heights. But I am very anxious about, I feel like the genuine prospect that Donald Trump could actually win a re-election, given that, you know, the Democrats are basically just trying to clear a path for Biden without really acknowledging that there is going to be a primary going on. Er you know, Eric Levitz had this piece, I'm not sure if you saw it in New York Magazine, where he's just pointing out how close the 2020 election really was. Even Biden's big lead in the popular vote, about four and a half percent. Like if you narrow it down to the states that actually decided the Electoral College, I mean, if Biden had only only won by four percent, he probably would have lost to Donald Trump. And, you know, I mean, there's no particular reason to believe that the economy or, or the perception of Biden's management of the economy are going to be better in 2024. So all of that uh, makes me very anxious. Yeah, I think the Levitz piece is really good because it just points out the fact that Biden is super vulnerable. And I think this is going to be you know an election in which people are going to be pretty disengaged, I think, you know, and I think the thing that's slightly terrifying about it for me is that, you know, you can easily see just an enthusiasm gap because I think people just aren't that excited about Biden in general. I think the election is going to be like the most negative partisanshipy election ever. And that essentially, you know, we will once again be told to come out to vote to stop, you know, again, a guy who should be stopped. But I think that, you know, Trump it's a delicate thing to say. How do I put this? But Trump in some ways is like a sort of white Obama and that, you know, he he can turn out. Yes. But I mean this in that there's <laughs> there's a certain group of voters that he can only turn out like that yeah. only turn out for him. Right. And and these people number in the millions, you know, maybe not the tens of millions, but the single digit millions. And like that's one reason why Republicans have struggled. They don't vote in the midterms. They didn't vote when Trump wasn't on the ballot. I think there are just people who will only vote for Donald Trump. Now, we don't know if that will still be true in 2024, but if that holds true and Biden can't turn out um, the Democratic base, which seems like not an unreasonable expectation, then I think you're kind of in trouble. The one thing I will say about the debates, which I agree, they should be um, <laughs> exciting, especially if Larry, especially we'll see what Larry Elder does, but I'm I'm very curious about Elder. Um, this, these are words I might eat later. Um, but one of the things that I think will be interesting is that the one point that DeSantis has not really hit as hard, although he's signaled it before, is, you know, Trump's biggest actual vulnerability with the Republican base is the vaccine. Yes. And, and I do think that the vaccine politics could easily take over. Now, I just don't know if people even care about 
this anymore. Even Republic, I mean, I think most people don't care about it. But the extent to which there's an animated, you know, anti-vaccine base on the right will be interesting to see. But that I think is that's really the only thing left that DeSantis has that Trump doesn't, and that he could be sort of boxed in on. But that all presumes, I think, a, a level of political skill that he just has not shown that that he has at all. And I think you know Trump. Trump's line on DeSantis is mostly right, that he's basically the beneficiary of, you know, a pretty, well, insane work done by the Republican Republicans in Florida to turn that state red. But I think that, you know, DeSant- whether that's DeSantis or whether that's the Florida GOP, like it increasingly looks like that's the Florida GOP. Well, uh, that's uh, that's a lot of uh, very depressing stuff. Uh, so I think uh, it's time to turn to something fun. Uh, Alex, you suggested... Uh, a particular film series that I'm embarrassed to say I had not heard of. As somebody who who co-hosts the Michael and Us podcast, I cannot believe I am just learning of the God's Not Dead film series. This is a series, I believe, five or six in number at this point. The first one, which is the one we we will be talking about, which we watched for uh, for this week, uh, God's Not Dead, came out in 2014. Uh, stars, among other people, the great Kevin Sorbo, who is, I guess, within the world of Christian evangelical films, a really, really big deal. Like, he is a superstar to heathen normies like you and I. He's just the guy that once played Hercules on TV and then went a a bit nuts. But I guess he's a really, really big deal within this kind of cloistered world of, you know, right-wing evangelical Christian films. You prayed and believe your whole life and here you are explain that to me what do you say to people that are offended by your show because you pray to jesus in every episode if we disown him he'll disown us when a 12 year old watches his mother dying of cancer a god who would allow that is not worth believing in life is really a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Name? Uh, Wheaton. Josh Wheaton. Philosophy 150. You might want to think about a different uh, instructor. Come on, man, it can't be that bad. Think uh, Roman Coliseum. People cheering for your death. I am Professor Radisson. This is Philosophy 150. I would like to bypass senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of. There is no God. All that I require from each of you is that you fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. I don't know. You you suggested it, so I want to ask you, uh, how did you discover this series, uh, which you seem to know more about than than Will or I, and what is your relationship to it? How many of these films have you actually seen, Alex? Be honest. I've seen the first three, (laughs) um, all of which are basically the same, but... I got into this because I have uh, my uh, great friend, Michael Shapira, who's a philosophy professor, I think somehow found out about it. It sort of became a bit on my group chat because because of the centrality of the philosophy class in this. We'll talk about that later. Hell yeah. Uh, and, and so I can't remember. This may, this must have been, it was shortly after this. Well, it's not, it was 2011, but we, we had a sort of longstanding habit of 
doing bits essentially of, <laughs> of when which we would sort of torture ourselves watching terrible things because we thought they were funny and this was great and i mean it was i just put it back in the same group chat which we've had for 11 years and we're reminiscing about this when my friend jesse apparently talks about this movie or jesse's a literature professor at Berea college uh, apparently talks about this movie to his students uh, a lot and i don't know how that is but but I also I think that they you know these movies were were the first one in particular was a pretty big box office success when it came out. Oh my god, this movie has j- just to give uh, all of you listening, I'm we're going to assume I think that ninety nine point nine percent of you have not seen or even heard of this film. But what you need to understand is this film has twelve percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It cost two million dollars to make, and it made almost sixty five million dollars at the box office. So this film was. What like a major hit of 2014, even though nobody outside of like the evangelical Christian movie going audience has really seen it. Yeah. And I think it's the theme of this movie explains the American uh, contemporary American right in a way that I think it, it, just perfectly like I mean, it's a movie that is ostensibly about faith and the existence of God. But it is really it really just posits again and again this idea that white protestant christians very important distinction here uh are uniquely persecuted against in in america and in fact american institutions exist for the sole purpose of um debasing and humiliating them and that the only way to stop them is to fight back and to stand up it is a total fantasy but i think it's one that you know you see it everywhere right i mean this is we were just talking about tucker carlson and this is essentially the basis of the entire Carlson project, which is, again, that like the, these are decent, well-meaning people, a humble college student, the Duck Dynasty guy, yeah. um, you know, a, a Muslim woman who secretly loves Jesus. These are uh-huh. all decent people who just want to live their lives in the truth of God's light and society, which is to say politicians, professors and literally yeah, the, the, the existence the, 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 of other the, faiths. The, yes, the, the pernicious forces of godless humanistic liberalism are besieging, yeah, uh, yeah the good, earnest, real Americans who just want to just want to friggin worship Jesus in peace, you know? Yeah, but it, but it takes on, I think, ultimately, its its perspective is is essentially theocratic fascism. Like it, it, it is theoretically about how, oh, we just want to live our lives in truth. But it actually what these movies actually argue is that these are the only decent people in the country, in the world, really, and that they cannot stop until everyone is converted to their viewpoint. And as we see, we'll get we'll we get to the specifics, but as we'll see in this movie, it also very much like on the right, I mean, it, this is everybody really, but especially on the right, it also exists within this fantasy that if only people just had access to Christian right-wing ideas, then they would instantly see the truth and acknowledge it, That which is ridiculous, but that, that's what these movies argue. Right. There is a, a simple revelation, you know, moral and spiritual uh, revelation that is just literally hiding in plain sight and which if people are just exposed to it, which, you know, we see, we see what that exposure looks like a number of times throughout this movie. Uh, if people are exposed to it or the, you know, the obstacles, the impediments to being exposed to it are removed, people will just be, be saved and, uh, and, and see the light. So, so let's get into what the, what the plot of this, this movie is. Uh, and, and I'm sure we will return to that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny. There, there is not a lot to the plot of this movie, and yet at the same time, there's somehow too much. This is a movie which centers on a young Christian evangelical who goes to college, 
and uh, basically faces off against, uh, yeah, this godless uh, heathen uh, professor named Radisson. I should say, we should just underline the fact that this professor, the plot of the movie, essentially the plot of the movie is just that. This professor who teaches a philosophy class makes all of his students (laughs) sign a pledge at the start of the first day that says God's dead. And then this kid refuses, and this professor then spends the next several weeks of class time <laughs> debating this child about if god exists or not yeah so you know there's there is absolutely no subtlety to anything in this movie because in order to present you know yeah the world of like noxious atheist humanism in the way that it wants to like it, it's it is a completely manichaean universe this film where you know yeah on one side are characters who are believers and they are earnest and humble and curious and they believe in things like family and you know loyalty to each other and that kind of stuff and they're happy and they're content with the world. And on the other side are these godless non-believers who just, yeah, hate everything, out to destroy Jesus and have, have no, uh, have no joy. You know, yeah. So as, as we were saying, the kind of center of the film, the A plot, if you want, is godless Professor Radisson deb- debating this child about uh, the existence of, of God. And, you know, this conceit, you know, is so improbable because, as you said, he occupies, seems to take like, I don't know, half the semester, uh, <laughs> it, you know, not teaching philosophy and just having these debates. Like we see three debates. They spend three classes debating. This class and, is only once a week, too. They establish early on that this they only meet once a week. <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. This is presumably nine hours of class time is given over to this. Right. And, you know, there's nothing improbable about the idea that you would go to, uh, you know, university and you have a philosophy professor who doesn't believe in God and maybe who even, maybe who tells you that. But there's so many things about this conceit that don't work. I mean, first of all, like no professor is going to order their students to write God is dead on a piece of paper. And like, you know, you're going to hand that into me or I'm going to like he basically threatens like I'll just fail you. I mean, it's yeah. like if they did, they would like they would face, you know, professional discipline. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, um, this idea, though, that, that that is I mean, this is the animating idea of Ron DeSantis's crusade to brought in that creep Chris Rufo to Florida, which is. The, this is, I think, the way that that the American college and university system works in the mind of conservatives, which is that it is a place of indoctrination. It's not yes. a place of learning. And I think that I mean, there's this funny thing. I just pulled it up where the class starts and he has a list of professors. He has a list of philosophers. Oh, my God. Is- I made I made a note of this. And it's the funniest can. It's like a canon of philosophers that this is not what the like philosophy 101 canon looks like at all. It's Michel Foucault, Forbach, Nietzsche. Diderot, John Stuart Mill, Richard Dawkins, Noam Chomsky, Freud, Camus, Hume, uh, Democritus Brecht, Ayn Rand, and Bertrand Russell. Like, that is not a philosophy 101 syllabus. And then, you know, you of course, you find out that what all these people have in common is that they're atheists, which begs the further question, like, there's an obvious name missing from this list who you would think would appear in a movie like this, and that would be Karl Marx. And I like to imagine... 
that Karl Marx in, uh, you know, the world of the people who made this movie, it's actually like, he's like, he who must not be named. Like, it's too scary. So you can't even, you can't even put that in the movie. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, the inclusion of Ayn Rand is very funny in that way, too. I mean, it's just, again, it's how blinkered this entire thing is. Um, But again, it's like this idea that, yeah, the liberals control the university system and the way that they, like, enforce their power is by literally making you sign binding social contracts contracts and then holding your career future in jeopardy you know when you're just like in real life this guy would be a fucking adjunct you know this is a philosophy is philosophy 125 and (laughs) and he would just be some guy making forty five hundred dollars if that and like he's just burnt out he lives with four roommates yeah so all of that is ridiculous but then furthermore like the film fundamentally misrepresents or misunderstands like what a philosophy class is. Like you don't go into a philosophy class and like have debates about the nature of reality, really. Or you're, you don't go to be given like didactic sermons by the professor about the nature of existence. You're learning about the history of how people have approached questions of like metaphysics or epistemology or whatever. But I guess all of this is just in the service of what you just said, which is that in the conservative imagination, these institutions are just institutions of indoctrination. Like they're teaching you, they're, t- they're, they're, they're forcing you to learn critical race theory. They're, they're forcing you to sign a pledge where you renounce the existence of God. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that in general as well, like there's the one decent Christian, right, which is itself a trope, but the sort of supporting cast in this are similarly cruel and venal atheists or well-meaning people who just who as soon as they come into contact with God's light are converted. And I think, well, the, the funniest of these is there is a liberal blogger. who Yes. Yes. She introduces herself to people by saying, hi, I, I write I write the new left. I blog the new left. As if this yes. is like, like, again, it doesn't, it's like she, she walks around and she's presented in the film as like somebody who's kind of like of note. And she's literally just somebody who writes what seems like a sort of very mid 2000s era, like liberal blog, where the main thing she seems to blog about is indignation at the fact that Duck Dynasty <laughs> believes in God and tells yeah. and says so. <laughs> it's such a great interview where she's like, are you aware that your products are used to kill defenseless ducks? And they're like... <laughs> They're like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the whole, that's the whole point. <laughs> and then she's like, and, and you pray, you really pray before you, but on every episode, like how disgusting. And that's, I mean, don't know what the mod, I mean, I think she's supposed to be like a Huff Post blogger. There's a funny part earlier. She's on the phone with her editor and is like, if I only get 30,000 page views for this duck dynasty hit job or whatever, it's also amazing because it gets to the larger problem with the movie as a movie, which is that this is somebody who doesn't come into contact with any of the other characters. I'm glad you brought that up because as we've been saying, you know, the the narrative center of this movie is the conflict between the hilariously named Josh Wheaton, which is so close to Joss Whedon, and Kevin Sorbo, the, the godless uh, Professor Radisson. But then, I don't know, two B-plots and something that I, I think it's more of a C-plot and it's just like very badly stitched together. Like if you took out the C-plot involving the young Muslim woman who is actually secretly a Christian, if you just took that out of the movie, like you wouldn't even notice that it was gone. Like it's not in the service of anything else. It's not really in conversation with anything else in the movie. And I feel like this is true of to to a lesser extent, but still to a great extent with the various other kind of like B stories. Yeah, I mean, there there are these two 
priests who are like getting hoodwinked by this rental car. I don't car know. Guy. I don't know what this. What is this rental car dilemma, which somehow spans <laughs> the entire movie? It's also incredible because one, the rental car gets <laughs> delivered to that. So the the idea is that they're trying to go to Disneyland, I think, because the priest has a guest who's from Africa, who's a missionary, and he wants to go to Disneyland for his children. right. And 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 the priest is jealous of him because he regards him as like somebody who's out there on the front line, like fighting the good fight. Um, you know, he's in the trenches, whereas you know. I'm just stuck here in this kind of like small time uh, setting or whatever. And then, yeah, for some reason he wants to take him to Disneyland where like, I don't know. I feel like this, uh, this movie should have more hostility to Disneyland, but I guess in 2014 that hadn't really become a thing yet, but but yeah, so their entire plot basically just concerns them going back and forth to this rental car place where for some reason the shitty sedan they're trying to rent never works. And then there's this really weird scene where it's like nighttime. Like everything is just slightly off in this movie. Like they're going to drive to Disneyland, I guess at night. And then the car doesn't work. And the rental car guy, they're like, can we get another car tonight? And the rental car guy is like... Nah, shucks, sorry, I gotta go audition for Death of a Salesman. Uh, So he has his community theater obligations or something that's like stopping him from lending them another car. And this conflict, if you want, is somehow stretched out over the whole movie. I'm really not sure what that's about or why these guys are even in the movie. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that's crazy is the priest lives there and yet doesn't have a car. Like, uh, and also the problem with the car is that it won't start, which, you know, you could just jump the thing you know you could literally go underneath the car and you know bang the starter with something and it'll probably turn over and yeah they keep getting hoodwinked to this thing. i mean it's it all gets into this this we can talk about the movie's cosmology i guess but <laughs> but i think one of the things that's fascinating about it is it is like actively hostile to the idea of faith as a concept in a lot mm-hmm. of ways so you know theoretically right like you can't win a debate about if god exists because nobody knows and like the whole you know the centerpiece of faith is that you believe in this thing despite the, the lack of evidence but that won't do in the world if god's not dead and so it gets really convoluted really quickly but i think the thing with the car you know the the missionary keeps telling the priest oh you just have to have faith you just have to pray that the car will start and it will start. Right, and, then, and then and when the car starts, he's like, well, let's shout out to God. Thanks for finally making the car start. We can go to Disneyland now. God is great. <laughs> well, so so we learn later that Kevin, the reason why Kevin Sorbo hates God is that he, he prayed to God to save his mother from cancer and she died anyways. And, you know, I think setting aside that, well, no, we can't set aside the question of an interventionist God because, you know, the movie lambasts him for this. And yet um, the movie establishes later on repeatedly that, in fact, God is intervening all the time. It, it makes the car start. <laughs> it makes Kevin Sorbo get hit, spoiler alert, get hit by a car and die at the very end of this movie. Or God does. <laughs> So then theoretically, by the logic established by this film, God also caused Kevin Sorbo's mother to die directly, (laughs) despite the fact that he had prayed, which it does seem reasonable to hate that God in this context. Like, that seems totally logically (laughs) fair. And right, also, right. Why is God, you know, God can't save Kevin Sorbo's mom, but he's overly concerned with whether or not a, a rental car, a <laughs> 2011 Toyota Corolla, will the engine will turn over? You're, you're right. I mean, the theology of this movie or the cosmology does not really make sense at all. And 
the three debates uh, that we see between Radisson and uh, I'm just going to call him Joss Whedon. Yeah, they get increasingly convoluted and they very much take this kind of Christian science route, which I feel like is like actively undermines the purported message of faith that the movie is supposedly trying to communicate. Like, in, I guess it's the second debate, Sorbo gets owned when uh, Joss Whedon brings up, I guess, like, Sorbo has tried to own him in the previous debate with this quote from Stephen Hawking. The crux of it is that the universe created itself, and it, and it didn't it's a need cl- a it. clock without a clockmaker, essentially. That's right. And then young Josh owns Kevin Sorbo by being like, well, I just happen to have a quote from a professor of mathematics here that finds, sir, not one, but three logical fallacies in Mr. Hawking's quote. And so then it's like they're literally just debating logic. Like they're debating whether this like statement by Stephen, like they're doing analytic philosophy. <laughs> like this has nothing to do with metaphysics. For Christians, the fixed point of morality, what constitutes right and wrong is a straight line that leads directly back to God. Oh, so you're saying that we need a God to be moral, that a moral atheist is an impossibility. No, but with no God, there's no real reason to be moral. I mean, there's not even a, a standard of what moral behavior is. For Christians, lying, cheating, stealing, in my example, stealing a grade I didn't earn are forbidden. It's a form of theft, but if God does not exist, as Dostoevsky famously pointed out, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. And after that, it just gets more and more convoluted because then, as you pointed out, it it turns out it's not even the case that Kevin Sorbo is an atheist. He believes in God. He's just mad at him. And this is something that you you find throughout the A story, but also all of the B stories as well, uh, or or most of them, is that the non-believer characters, you know, they're actually just aggrieved because of something that's happened to them, or or you know, because they're because they're unhappy. Yeah, and I think that that you know, again, that this shows a sort of contempt that the film has for anyone who does not believe in Protestant evangelical white Jesus. And again, it also, I think, gets to the larger kind of debate me ethos that like exists, you know, that was really starting to percolate it when this movie came out and has since completely taken over the right, which is this idea, you know, there are all these, you know, the Marine Todd idea, right? Like this movie is, has a lot of Marine Todd qualities to it. But more broadly, you know, the, the presumption here is that, you know, liberal hegemony means that all the institutions are designed to enforce a certain type of dogma. But like, as soon as you poke at them, it completely falls apart because all of these people are in fact not honest they don't honestly believe it and in fact they secretly all have jesus in their heart or whatever that's an idea about power right it's this idea that they've already won and in fact this is the only right way to think about the world you know and and the irony of this is of course like their goal is just to create institutions that are exactly like this but just to enforce this like very narrow christian nationalism i, I want to say too i mean i think i mean none of the plots of this movie make sense but there's a <laughs> no. kind of fascinating <laughs> I mean, it's it's probably the most offensive part of this movie is the the Muslim uh, oh, yes. woman character. She wears like a headscarf, and everyone is just like, "But you're so pretty!" Like, why? You know, she secretly takes it off when she gets <laughs> to the school where she works in the dining hall. Uh, but one of the things that I thought was fascinating is, you know, she's whining about having to wear the scarf to her domineering father. 
and he kind of gives her this pep talk that's just like, but this is about who we are. Like, this is our identity, you know, like it's us against the world or whatever. And I was like, this is the, the only time the movie is actually sympathetic to somebody. I think inadvertently <laughs> yeah, it's created yeah. this kind of like, you know, Islamo fascist um, <laughs> father. And it's like, well, you know, we're actually the same, but it doesn't, it never recognizes that the Islam that this guy who eventually, you know, beats that hell out of his daughter for listening to Franklin yes. Graham read throws her throws her out of the house because she's listening to like pass uh, some passage from Corinthians on her iPod or something yes <laughs> yes second Corinthians read by Franklin Graham um, but it's a similar thing where you know she as and there's another character who is from the People's Republic of China who um who also becomes enamored with um with uh Josh Whedon um Josh Whedon <laughs> And, you know, again, it's this idea that, oh, all of the godless heathens out there, all of the non-believing Muslims, all of the atheists, you know, you know, as soon as they encounter the light and truth <laughs> of God, then we all win and there's no actual conflict at all. One of several laugh out loud moments for me watching this film was when you see this uh, this character who's uh, you know playing a, a student from China who's come over from China, who has, you know, a dad who we see in, I don't know, just about two scenes where his dad is like, well, if your professor says God isn't real, that's all that matters. Like you need to get you need to get good grades. So say that God isn't real. Um, this character's name is Martin, and in a film that basically has zero subtlety, he gets to say the most uh, the most didactic and just like non-subtle line of the entire film, which is that after the final debate where young Joss owns Kevin Sorbo for the last time and he is just d destroyed by logic, leaving the classroom dejected, Martin comes up to him and he says... Uh, Josh, your decision to argue that God's not dead has affected me greatly. I have, <laughs> I have decided to follow Jesus. And then Josh is just like, hey, that's great, man. High five. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. I, I love that plot. The other plot uh, that's extremely funny. Uh, well, I guess there are two romance plots in the movie that are very funny. Uh, at the beginning of the film, Josh has a girlfriend who very quickly leaves him because she's like, well, if you don't get good grades, you're not going to get into law school. And, you know, we're not going to have the future together that we've always talked about. Uh, you just need to drop the class. And uh, we get to see some pretty uh, some pretty funny banter between them. Like the only backstory we get is uh, Josh saying on their anniversary, you know, six years ago, your youth group collided with mine. Yes. Uh, and so their youth groups collided. They're both obsessed with a band that is called, what are they the, called? The, the News, the Newsboys. The Newsboys. At the beginning of the movie, we see, I guess, Josh's room. He's got a Newsboys poster. They end up appearing in the kind of like final triumphant concert scene. Uh, it's filmed very much inspired by the movie Rat Race, I would say, and then it ends. <laughs> but instead of, wow, it's Smash Mouth, it's like, holy shit, it's the Newsboys. And I, yeah, I guess, if, I get, yeah, I guess if you, if you're the kind of person who would go see this movie in earnest, the Newsboys are a very big, uh, a very big deal to you. But the other uh, romantic plot, which I think gives us what for me was the funniest scene in the entire movie, is we find out that Kevin Sorbo's character, Professor Radisson, actually has uh, a girlfriend who's a Christian. 
who he's just like, again, you know, all the, the antagonist characters are just totally unsympathetic and one dimensional. He's just so condescending to her from the very beginning. Like he says to her, and it's meant to be a compliment. Like, I know you're a Christian, but my intellectual rigor just falls apart whenever yes. I'm around you, <laughs> which is such a shitty thing to say to your partner. You know, and we find out that she's his former student, which is pretty sketchy. All, you know, this also plot... they, they talk about Emily Dickinson and <laughs> Shelley, and I was like, what does this guy even teach? I was like, this movie's an argument against tenure. He's just spending all this time debating some student. He's a philosophy professor who's teaching Prometheus or... <laughs> Yeah, he's skipping over Plato and he's just talking about, like, Hamlet for some reason. But so all of this culminates in, as I said, what for me was the funniest scene in the movie, because the caricature that this film has of kind of what it what it imagines atheistic, godless, humanist, liberal settings to be like, like, it's it's so exaggerated that everything in these scenarios, everything in these scenes, everything about these characters is just slightly off. So Kevin Sorbo, too, in this case, absolutely hilarious uh, results because Kevin Sorbo hosts a dinner party for his academic colleagues and the movie. it's so fucking it's so fucking good like it gives us the evangelical idea of what like an urbane liberal setting looks like there's a, a piece of classical music playing that's very familiar I couldn't quite place it I can't remember if it's uh I can't remember if it's Bach but it's like it's basically one notch away from using uh, like Mozart's Ein Klein Nacht music to co- connote like sophistication or something. Like it's just it's just so hack. Um, and then they're they're drinking wine, and then when he, when they're pouring the wine, he says uh, a nice Merlot to take the edge off, which like is not a thing yes. that that's not something real people say <laughs> when they're drinking wine. <laughs> yes. Also, this is you know this is still in the post sideways blast zone with Mer- it's Merlot and sideways, right? So I feel like you know a liberal professor. 10 years after the movie Sideways would have been caught dead drinking a Merlot. Wait, wait. So what is what is Sideways? I, I don't know. Oh, sorry, I don't the, get movie, the, the movie here. Sideways, the Paul Giamatti movie from 2004 famously depressed the Merlot market uh, in America <laughs> because Paul Giamatti plays this depressed wine snob and he yeah, there's a big moment where he's like, I won't drink fucking Merlot or whatever. It's, you know, it's. <laughs> And it like literally, I guess, had the industry at its knees. I hate that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. Will Will would know this. I'm doing a bad <laughs> Will impression right now. Um, but yes, it's like there are so many. Everything is just like these like terrible puns, right? Because he says whatever it is, Nothis Aton or something, you know, like. And... Right. He bludgeons his girlfriend who is basically he's just forcing her to be like the help and serve serve a wine and cheese to him and all his like sophisticated friends while they talk about like Richard Dawkins. <laughs> or whatever it is they're talking about. And then, you know, there's like this weird thing, which again, I don't really understand this, where they, after he's like grandiosely, you know, offered them a little bit of a splash of Merlot to take the edge off. They take a sip of the wine and he's like, this this wine is terrible. And she's like, oh, I, well, I, I went and I got it and I, I left it in the car. <laughs> and so somehow leaving this, this bottle of, of red wine with the cork still in, in the car, like an unopened bottle of red wine has like ruined it. 
which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Uh, and then, yeah, as you said, he hits her with this Socrates quote. He <laughs> yeah. says, as Socrates said a thousand years ago, and he says it uh, in, in Greek. Uh, and then one of the one of the godless, you know, sociologists sitting next to him says, oh, clearly like like reading the look on her face. Oh, it's all Greek to her. <laughs> uh, and then he translates and he says, know thyself, by which I guess, uh, you know, he, he meant know your limitations. And it, it's yeah. like the implication here is like, yeah, check it out, everyone. My girlfriend is too dumb to to go wine shopping properly. <laughs> and it's like, what is this subplot? It makes absolutely zero well, sense. Well, you're also like, know thyself. What? You're like, know yourself to not forget a bottle of wine in your <laughs> trunk. It's probably fine in the <laughs> trunk. Like, that, what is it? They live in the Mojave Desert or something? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing too is you're like like all of this movie, it's laziness, but and it's lack of familiarity with actual people who are like this. Where you're like, <laughs> there's a really easy version of this where it's just that she buys Merlot or some other type of crappy wine. She buys the wine product that you could buy at the bodega or whatever, and they're just like, this is disgusting. Swill. That's right. Like, it's we're here right because eat. they have they have bourgeois tastes and they don't like it. That would yeah. why, why didn't why didn't they just do that? <laughs> yeah, or why didn't she come out with a tragus? I mean, it would have to change now. But she could just have a tray of Bud Light or something. And it, you know, like all of these things would work. And I just, you know, you keep editing this movie because I mean, I, you know, I love an academic satire, but this is just like ridiculous. I mean, again, too, there's this, there's another funny moment when she goes up to him to break up with him and he's talking to one of the guys at the dinner party and he's just like, can you believe that this kid brought up John Lennox or whatever the, you know, <laughs> and you're like, why is this guy's calling that like, wait, you're spending three class sessions debating a child? Why are, why are you trying to own like an 18 year old with logic? <laughs> yeah, you're like, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, this is not related to the movie directly, but you know what an example of, I, I don't know, a, a, a satire of like, I don't know, pompous, like upper crust liberals drinking wine, something that always works really well for me. I think it's in the very last season of The Sopranos, which I don't know. Have you have you seen that? Oh, yeah. So do you remember when there's the plot where there's like a, a guy who's an eyewitness to something? I can't remember which murder he sees, just like a civilian. And he goes to the cops with it. And then there's a shot where he and his wife are like sitting around in their like upper crust New Jersey house. And they're listening to this like shitty atonal music and drinking what we can only assume is very expensive wine and then he, the book he's reading is Robert Nozick's Anarchy State and Utopia yes. Yes, which yes. I think is such a perfect satire of like a certain type of like annoying rich person yes <laughs> yeah it's incredible and I'm just like I just want that you know I don't know why I'm like why is God's Not Dead better movie? why is it not it, as good as The Sopranos <laughs> wait so we've been talking about the, the other the funniest well the, the funniest thing is a dinner party but the funniest thing about the Sorbo Christian girlfriend thing is that she has a brother uh, yes. she's taking care of her mother who is who has dementia and she has a brother who is an athe a high-powered atheist who right is that right? He was also dating another character. Yeah, he well, he's dating the the, the blogger from the prestigious right. uh, the That's new right. left blog who's waging the crusade against Duck Dynasty on yes. the interwebs. And yeah, he's just another one of these characters that is presented as completely selfish like they're sitting down for dinner he and this blogger and he's like guess what baby i made partner and then she's like yeah, i have, I have cancer. cancer and then he's like his his response is couldn't this wait until tomorrow? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's such a it it literally is the same um beat as like 
don't know if you used to watch the old Conan O'Brien when he was on late night, but he used to play the Walker Texas Ranger <laughs> clip where it'd be like Haley, it cuts to Haley Joel Osment and he's just like, Walker says I have AIDS or something. And it's like, has this exact same like rapid cut. But it's so clear that the Dean King character makes no sense. It's another thing too, where if the movie was done correctly, he would be the person driving the car that kills Kevin Sorbo. Yes. Um, but the reason he's not is that it's so obvious that they were just like, we can get Dean Kane. Dean Kane has one half day that he can give us. And they just like <laughs> plugged it all in because he's he's basically never, he's in the, the same room with the blogger for this conversation. Other than that, he's just on the phone or in cutaway, cutaway <laughs> yeah, scenes. Yeah, yeah he's, like... a, he's in a boardroom being like, I can't, I don't care about petty trifles of my blogger girlfriend. I'm on the phone with Singapore. The markets are going crazy. The deal's going through. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's so funny because I'm just like, oh yeah, they're like, no, no, you know who's a big draw is uh, that Dean Kane. We gotta get, we gotta write Dean Kane into this movie. I don't think a movie has, that we've done for the show has made me laugh quite like this for quite a long time. Oh, we got absolutely do, we incredible. Do the second one. Okay, well, okay, so we'll 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 wrap up by talking about the sequels. And don't worry, folks, there will be sequels to this episode of Michael and Us. Alex will be back, and we will be talking. I think about every single one of these movies. You know, Will is not in the country right now, but I'm going to send him a, t- I'm going to send a text message halfway across the world <laughs> to tell him that he needs to go and watch Gods and the Dead right now, even if it's not for the purposes of content creation. Just a few loose ends, though, uh, to tie up before we get to the, the sequels and the future of the God is Not Dead film franchise. We neglected to mention uh, the scene after the final debate where there's a sort of dead poet society like moment where Josh wins the final debate and then all of the students beginning with uh, Martin the Chinese student they they all just say God is not dead God's not dead and then they all stand up on their desks like at the end of Dead Poet Society and then yeah Kevin Sorbo gets hit by a car I don't know can we we talk about that really quickly because the funny so the two priest characters who are otherwise largely disconnected from this movie they show up occasionally (laughs) but they finally get their car to start and Kevin Sorbo and again they seem to be driving to disneyland late at night yes. for some yeah, well, reason it's, it's raining at 10 p.m and like, we have to go right now um, but the, the thing that's so uh there's a cgi scene where it would pe- people get hit by cars in movies is always funny to me but this one is so good he goes like 40 feet up in the air flips over you and- see you see it you see his face and he's just like no (laughs) (laughs) but the best part is the priests that are like oh no we have to get out and you're like oh yeah this is good like this guy's been seriously hurt like you should try to do something and instead they're like hey um do you believe in god and yeah, you're like, no, no, he just, he just had a catastrophic, and they're yeah. like, no, no, this is pretty important. Like, yeah, they, just like, call, they don't call 911, they don't try to do CPR, he literally dies, and they're, right. they just keep they, being like, but God. So what do you think about him? This is where the, the sickest and cruelest and most vengeful streak of the movie really comes out. Because this is part of the emotional catharsis, is that the film is like cruelly murdering its main antagonist in Kevin Sorbo, but then he doesn't die right away. And then there's this scene where like, yeah, as you said, the priests just sort of are like interrogating about whether he believes in God or not. So the question is, stay with me, stay with me. Are you willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to take that chance? God is willing to forgive you of your sins. 
all of them. If you accept his son and ask him into your life, that's all you have to do is just accept his son, accept his love, and receive his forgiveness right now. Do you accept him as Lord and Savior? Yes, I. And then the guy, the priest is sort of saying to him, like, look, I know you think this is bad. You're in pain. All of your internal organs have been like smushed and your rib cage is broken and you're uh, and you're about to die from internal bleeding. But but like, I'm here to tell you, this is actually good. God yeah. is doing you a favor. He's he, he's giving you another chance to praise his name before uh, before you leave this world. And really what this scene is just about is like. Yeah, the movie uh, torturing this character uh, that it that it hates and saying, "Well, actually, you should be you should be thankful that you got hit by a car and are having this painful death." Well, I mean, the movie strongly implies that God did this as a way of test, you know, of testing him or of giving it, converting him. And then at the end, the priests, there's like a moment where they're like reflecting and the priests are like, that was awesome. Like, did he, he like, wasn't that so cool? And you're like, he died. You just want you guy get you just witnessed, die. You just witnessed a horrific hit and run. And, uh, and then you watched a man like bleed out on the street and it's like well wasn't that great anyway time to go to disneyland <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and they're like ecstatic about it yeah, and then it yeah, cuts to, yeah. and then it cuts to the newsboys because hell uh, yeah and there's a great part there where they cut they're like playing to like like thirty thousand people <laughs> they're at like the crypto.com arena or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah, weird yeah. band i looked also at the newsboys later and they're my favorite type of band and that they have existed since 1986 but they have no original <laughs> members all, like the most recent guy has been there since like 1999 or something uh, everyone is just in and out of the band but there's a great part where, where again this is to tens of thousands of people and the lead singer is like so i hear you guys have been uh having a pretty crazy debate here yeah there's a there's a there's a, there's a young man in the crowd Shut up! <laughs> There's a, a young man in the crowd who who took up the gauntlet to defend God's honor, and folks, uh, this one's for you. It's <laughs> a great part where he says, "We hear that there was a professor here that made people say God's dead," and you hear the guy who goes, "Boo!" <laughs> <laughs> and also, the funniest part is that he's dead. All of this is happening at, right after he dies. He dies. <laughs> It's like, at first I thought they were going to be like, you know, not the best guy, but we're sorry to hear. But his laws have said, everyone's like, no, fuck this guy. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, the movie ends and we get a sort of like, they do a song, which I guess is called God's Not Dead, which is like, basically sounds like that Scientology song, like, hey, la, la, la. Yeah. yeah kind of got yeah. that energy. And then. I guess the kind of final uh, significant thing that happens is that the sea story with the young woman from the Muslim family who's been a secret Christian, she comes up behind <laughs> behind yeah. Josh, who who let's not forget his girlfriend has left him, and this young woman is like, "Hey, I I just I just want to say I I think it was I think it was pretty cool what you did," and then he kind of is like, "Yo, thanks," and then he just turns back. It's like in this way that's like inadvertently, I feel like his body language is sort of saying like. 
Yeah, that's great. Uh, thanks. But I, I'm trying to watch the Newsboys here. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't interrupt me when I'm listening to the... I was like, how does she know about the Newsboys? She listens to, listens to the Bible, the book on tape of the Bible one time. She she got she literally has been exiled by her family. And her first instinct is like, well, uh, I could fi- at least I can finally go see the Newsboys. It's, it's, her listening uh, to the Bible is also funny because you're like... You know, it's one of the early seasons of The Simpsons. One of the episodes where Homer thinks he's dying and there's a part where he's like listening to the bible on cassette and he just keeps fast forwarding it and it just is like and then abraham beget isaac and then it's you know you're just like how would direct access to this convert this person but i digress wow i knew this was going to be a fun uh, discussion and like yeah i was laughing during the movie and i don't know like to talk about it with someone else you just realize like yeah, this is accidentally one of the funniest movies ever made. Um, before we go, Alex, as somebody who has been, you know, steeped in the, you know, God's Not Dead franchise, <laughs> I just want to ask you, I mean, we will have you back. There there will be more of these movies in the future of this podcast. But can you answer a simple question for me, which is how the hell did they ring what, five more movies out of this concept? And like, can you give us a general picture of what the next two movies are are about? Yes. So the, I think the thing to understand about these movies is that they're basically all theoretically based around real events or real court cases. So this, when the movie ends, I don't know if you stuck around for the credits, there's a news voice <laughs> stirring song continues. But they, uh, the credits of this I movie was I was show... busy texting all my friends as instructed by the Duck Dynasty guy. God, <laughs> yes. God, 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 God is... God, God's not dead. <laughs> God. What a guy. God, the scene with them is. Um, anyway, so so the, at the as the credits roll, like they they don't before they even say you know Kevin Sorbo as godless professor. There's a long roll of like here are all the court cases in which Christians are, have been condemned yes. in this country, and it's like when you actually look at them, it's almost entirely people who were blatantly violating the separation of church and state, and. <laughs> Or just be told that they can't do that. But the way that they get more movies out of this is they continue to sort of take smaller controversies and then then sort of inflate them. So the second movie, which we'll be talking about next, uh, (laughs) is uh, that one stars Melissa Joan Hart. And she gets I think she gets arrested, but she's sued by the ACLU because she um, quotes the Bible. She's a teacher. And she quotes the Bible. So there's a kind of like to kill a mockingbird um right. trial element to that in which she's put on on the stand. And also, oh, so it's not like to kill a mockingbird. It's like um, Miracle on 34th Street because the ACLU lawyer right. is not enough to punish her. He also has to prove that God is dead. Um, so you get this, the, you know, the, the worst parts of this movie because the movie doesn't care about them are it's. Uh, theological moments and that's a big thing here too the the priests i think are in all of these movies um and the second one pastor pastor dave who pastor dave we didn't say is the writer and director of these movies uh his church is burned down by a vandal killing the african missionary who is trapped inside oh my god Uh, i believe that the star of this movie josh whedon is in this movie as well as and he's a priest now so basically this one has the plot that's essentially of the movie breaking or maybe breaking to electric boogaloo in which the church is trying this sorry the the university is trying to seize the use eminent domain to seize their land and then uh basically you know under the guise that religion should all be treated equally or something 
And the fourth one, I think, is about homeschooling, but I haven't seen it. So uh, I was just <laughs> looking at the Wikipedia for it. That one has a different title. It's God's Not Dead, We the People. Um, and yeah, they're basically, it's a social worker gets a bunch of Christians in trouble for homeschooling their child. And that one is exciting <laughs> because um, that has a starring role in it from uh, Janine Pirro. Wow. Yes. Who who is the Janine Pirro? Yes. Who plays the uh, (laughs) the judge in it? And I think uh, Isaiah Washington of uh, Crooklyn and Clockers fame is also in that one, too. I like to imagine that uh, this series kind of like undergoes the same process that like a lot of things that go on too long undergoes where like it just gets more and more absurd and self-referential so by the time you get to the sixth one the sixth one makes the first one basically look like citizen kane (laughs) yes i I cannot wait to find out i will just say as as a final point before we wrap up uh I was watching this for free on YouTube, and we, we we will include this link for all of you listeners who are pain pigs and want to watch it for yourself. But shout out to the YouTuber, uh, Senior Froggy. Uh, <laughs> Senior Froggy has, has 27 subscribers. A funny detail of my viewing experience was that Senior Froggy seems to have uploaded like some kind of screen grab of like whatever player he was using to watch the movie. And I noticed that as the mo- the movie is like, the movie could be an hour long. Like it's just the same conceit over and over again. It's nearly two hours. And I noticed that after he got past the one hour mark, like the, the time bar at the bottom kept appearing <laughs> because I guess Senior Froggy was watching it and he was like, God, he kept being like, how much is left? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing, buddy. <laughs>